Welcome to Soulcraft Stories. These are conversations with people that are, in spite of the challenges, hurdles, and the mundane, are writing meaningful and fulfilling life stories. Like you and me, they have families, jobs, responsibilities, basically real-life stuff we all deal with. But they aren't waiting for someday, because that day might be too late to get your story started. They have, in their own ways, fought back against the resistance of excuses, society, laziness, and a bunch of other crap that, in the end, when the final chapter is written, is meaningless anyways. They've pursued travel, overcome addictions, learned new skills, and set big goals for themselves. Their stories aren't unique, but they're unique to them. So join me as we learn from each one of them and take their insight, advice, and turn it into permission for ourselves to stop procrastinating and start writing our own great life story. One of the most delightful things for a writer is when someone stumbles upon a story and takes the time to respond. That was said by Kim Cross, our guest today, in the bio on her website. She was referring to a great story she wrote for Southwest Airlines about a father-daughter relationship. But I came across another one of Kim's stories that involved her and her son and thought, who better to have on as an inspiration for the rest of us and be the first woman and mom on the podcast? So yes, Kim is an author, in fact, a New York Times best-selling author and journalist who has a penchant for meticulously reporting on narrative nonfiction. But she's also a lifelong athlete, having competed in at least 10 sports, nationally or internationally, in three water skiing, sprint triathlon, off-road triathlon, and 24-hour adventure racing. She's the head coach of a high school mountain bike team and teaches advanced creative nonfiction at Boise State University. Oh, and she's also a mom and a wife. Those are the titles she holds and some of the accomplishments, but our conversation intertwines all those as Kim shares with us her inspiring approach to living an intentional life story. Kim, it's so great to have you on, and really, it's it's an honor as the first mom and woman on the Soulcraft podcast. For those of the listeners out there, I came across Kim. I get this magazine, if you're unaware, called Outside Magazine, and there was an article on the cover that said, What I Learned from Doing 100 Wheelies a Day by Kim Cross. I proceeded to read the article as a mountain biker myself. And my kids are into it too. And as I was reading along, I was like, wow, I need to interview this woman. She just has a great story and her approach to life. So I, I hunted Kim down on in Instagram and she was kind enough to respond. So here we sit today and we're going to learn, I think, a lot today from Kim. So Kim, welcome, first of all. Thank you. Good to be here, Brian. So let's jump right into the 100 wheelies a day story. Walk us through that process. Obviously, most folks haven't read the article, probably listening. So let's let's dive in and what that meant to you, why you started that challenge. Sure. So I think it started as we were all going into pandemic or as pandemic um, was, was looming and we we're all going into kind of lockdown mode. And I felt so out of control with so much in the world. And I, I just thought, you know what, I, I just... I just want to have 
control or perceived control over one thing. And I've always wanted to learn a wheelie. And I've always been told by the people who can do it that it's just a matter of practice. You have to practice a lot. And so I thought, well, you know, what if I just go out and do 100 wheelies a day? I'll give myself 30 days um, spread out over a couple of months. And if I do 3,000 wheelies, maybe that'll be enough to actually master the skill. And I've been mountain biking for 20 years and I'd never been able to do it with, you know, bits and fits and spurts of practice. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to chip away at it. It'll give me something to do. It'll give me a reason to get out of the house and get on my bike. And uh, I think it was in January. So it was kind of cold. The trails were still covered with a little bit of snow. They were too wet to ride. And so I was like, well, this will get me at least riding around my neighborhood. So why not? That's, that's awesome. And 3000 wheelies by your calculation. Right. I did actually more like 6,000 over the course (laughs) of the year. I hit 3000 and kept going. It was really interesting because, um, well, first of all, I, w- I would say, like, if you heard 3,000 wheelies, what would your first reaction be? Would you say, like, oh, that's totally enough, that's crazy? What What was your thought when you saw that number? Yeah, my, my first reaction was, wow, that's just a ton. You know, without having walked through it, you just think that's a whole bunch. But you're kind of alluding to it. That's at least what it takes. Well, yeah. So, you know, um, I started out, I realized that it only takes, if I was taking my time and really not rushing through it, it would take about an hour to do a hundred wheelies. If I was in a hurry and I was just like, bang, 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 I could get Mm -hmm. it done in half an hour. So that's really not a huge investment of time. And sort of looking back, um, if you think 30 hours is really less than a standard work week. So I spent less than a standard work week putting in the actual effort. So in, in that perspective, it doesn't sound like so much, but at the time I thought, you know, that sounds like a lot. And I pitched it to my editor at Outside, who um, is also a female mountain biker, also an Asian female mountain biker like me. Awesome. I knew that she had been playing around with wheelies. Like from time to time, you'll see a wheelie challenge on Instagram or something. And so she, she loved it. And at the same time, um, I was teaching a, um, an advanced creative nonfiction class at Boise State University. And I was trying to get my students who are mostly creative writing students and poets to learn how to learn the art of reporting. And instead of, I don't know, making them do journalism, I was like, well, you know, start with a stunt story, start with like, you know, an idea, a question, a premise, and then go out and experiment and follow your curiosity. And I did this in, in part as a way to show them like, this is, this is how you might do a stunt story. We'll do one together. And then it turned into um, this feature for outside. We'll touch on it again that because I think it's a theme, the word curiosity used I, to stay young, to stay um, energized in life. Curiosity is a big component. With that project and your curiosity, you brought your son into the 100 wheelies. So you guys did it together, uh, which was another reason that drew me to the story, having two boys that I mountain bike with as well. What did you ultimately both learn from the project? Well, it's funny um, that, you know, my son wasn't part of the original plan. It was just a solo quest. Gosh, maybe about a week in, I got a loner uh, kind of training tool. Um, They make these things called manual machines and you can build one, but there's a company called Sender Ramps that actually makes a kit that's easy to build. And I don't have the carpentry skills to build one. So they sent me one to test and it, it helps you find the balance point for a manual, which is a slightly different kind of wheelie. When I got that, 
that's when my son kind of opted in. He had seen me practicing for, you know, at least 700 wheelies or so. And I think he he started seeing his mom get better at this kind of cool kid trick. That was slightly motivating. But then this training device comes in and it's essentially a giant toy. And that's when he's like, I'm in. And so he actually opted in. I didn't invite him, but I mean, I didn't mind. It, it was kind of this fun moment where he saw he saw me doing this thing and he decided to join me. And it it turned into something else because suddenly it wasn't just about me and my quest. We were interacting and the dynamic of that changed the whole the whole project. We saw incredible gains in the first um, week or two, like the hockey stick analogy of improvement. And we progressed really, really well. And then at some point around, I think, day 11, we both hit, uh, well, I hit a peak at day 11 and I went like 34 strides, which was, uh, or maybe it was 34 feet, 17 strides. And um, and then we started kind of going backwards and it got a little bit frustrating because we hit this long plateau there were days when it just didn't feel fun anymore. And at some point, sort of toward the end of the 30-day challenge, we went out there and we just weren't feeling it. And so we were like, let's let's play hooky on our own expectations. And we rode around the neighborhood, hopping curbs and just acting like kids. At that point, like something kind of magical happened. He had learned from me um, the value of trying and failing, trying and failing, and just not giving up and just repetition and persistence. But then I learned from him the value of lightening up and letting go of your expectations and just playing and doing something, not because of the end goal, but because the process is fun. And so we actually, we were doing wheelies in the neighborhood, but we weren't counting and it wasn't like a practice. It didn't feel uh, like an obligation anymore. And at, and at one point towards the end, he, on that day, he's like, mom, I want to show you something. We're going to have to stash our bikes. And so we stuff our bikes in these bushes and we crawl through the bushes and we pop out at this little, it's really like a water retention pond in the neighborhood like this is the frog pond and he had been talking about the frog pond for like two years since we moved here and he found um neighborhood buddies and they would always go to the frog pond to catch frogs <laughs> and poke at snakes and I never knew where it was he never would tell me I mean it wasn't like he was hiding it but he just conveniently didn't ever disclose the location right. and suddenly I was invited into this world of children and it felt like I had walked through the wardrobe in the line the witch in the wardrobe and I was in Narnia and I was like admitted <laughs> to kids and it was so cool so like in the end I think we we found the sweet spot at the crossroads of work and play and we learned those things from each other but the fact that that we learned them together was really kind of one of my my favorite parenting moments and my favorite moments as a, as a mountain biker. That's, that's awesome. And it just hearing you talk about crawling through the bushes and stuff, how many of us as parents, when's the last time we've really crawled through the bushes, Right. <laughs> like you, just that play aspect. And we forget that. So what I take away is pausing to think when I'm with my kids is what they can teach us too like your yep. son teaching you. And let me ask you this. Do you wonder if the outcome of that project would have been different? Had your son not gotten involved, would it been more tedious, arduous, become just a project versus having that play balance with, you know, the stick pushing through the plateaus, but enjoying the journey, enjoying the process? 
Oh yeah, it, it absolutely changed the the whole thing. It made it so much more fun. I looked forward to doing it. I looked forward to spending time with him. And and I also noticed that in the moments when I started taking it too seriously, those were the days when he chose not to come out with me. And that that's a great message. It's like, you know what, when it stops being fun, he doesn't want to be there. And that's a great lesson, I think, that we can co- continually learn from our kids. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And at the end of the day, you you were just practicing wheelies on a bike (laughs) the perfect the perfect kid moment so are you still practicing and and ultimately who's who's better oh gosh so um it's funny he (laughs) i i am still practicing and and the only reason he's not is because he is on his second broken bone um the the little side story is the day after our photo shoot for outside the whole time because we were going to be practicing at the bike park where we've both been learning to dirt jump, which is a little, you know, a little more dangerous than your typical right. mountain bike, you know, trail, trail ride. I had been saying like, please like, don't get hurt before the shoot. Don't get hurt before the shoot. Please don't do that. Wait till after the shoot. And the day after the shoot, he went out and he did the whole intermediate dirt, dirt jump line, which had several wooden ramps, a couple of wall rides, some pretty technical features that I don't do. He, he did the whole thing perfectly. And then there was a little tiny berm at the end that was a little gravelly. And he just went to kind of exit the jump line on this very small berm. And he slid out in the turn and put his hand down and broke his wrist. So he had a broken wrist. And then he came mm. back from that, went had a great snowboarding season. And then we had another photo shoot for another essay. And he actually was dirt jumping. And he, he took his foot off the pedal, got a little wonky in the air, and then came down without getting his foot back on the pedal and then broke his foot. All that to say, he is better than me, but he is also um, learning the, I think the the limits and the boundaries and what happens when you cross the limit. You know, he didn't with the first break, with the second, he kind of did. If we were to go out on the first day he's back, he would probably still be better. But I also point to superior neuroplasticity of being a child. It's the perfect age to learn stuff. When you're young, your brain is growing, your your neurons are synapses, everything is like connecting at an incredible rapid rate. And when you're older, it just doesn't happen quite like that. But right. never too really too old to to keep learning. So no, absolutely. I was a, into freestyle as a kid, biking, and then just until the past year or so, with the boys, got back into it. And people laugh. They say you mountain bike in Florida. We and we have some actually pretty unique trails down here. But just learning to sort of ride in that spirit again, and watching the kids and do things. And as you just mentioned, your son, you know, breaking bones and mine haven't yet on the bike knock on wood they <laughs> my younger one wears his broken wrist as a badge of honor as kids <laughs> tend to do <laughs> but it's, it's always funny to to talk to other parents that haven't experienced it with their kids watching them and you cringe but it's part of letting them go out and learn because it is inherently it can be a sport where you can get hurt as you know also having that experience of really kind of holding ourselves back. Cause I think in a lot of situations we can tend to want to do good and protect the kids, but harm them because our fears hold them back. So that's, that's really neat that you're out there doing with your son and you've seen the broken bones and experienced that with them. Right. And to be fair, you know, he also broke two bones at the playground at elementary school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, I think it's all a matter of perspective, but a, a river guide once gave us both a wonderful piece of advice. And she said, good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. That's a great line. 
(laughs) So my hope is that minor, I mean, relatively minor injuries um, early on will prevent the really big ones later on because that experimentation that you do as a child, the act and consequence, um, that there's really no better teacher than that. And I think it's, I don't know, my, my parenting style is, is more to, to let them make mistakes and learn from those mistakes instead of not letting them learn how to make decisions and recover from mistakes. I couldn't agree more, Kim. And speaking of experience, you've been into mountain biking, I think you mentioned for, for 20 plus years. So how did you get into mountain biking? Yeah, so that's a funny story. I um, I got in kind of a weird backwards way. Um, before I was a mountain biker, I was competitive water skier for about 13 years, and I was retiring from that sport at 23. It's what I went to college, uh, not for. I, I was on a water ski team in college, and um, I was kind of burnt out, and I was looking for new ways to have fun and new sports, and I met this guy who was into adventure racing. At the time we met, he did a couple of eco challenges. I don't know if you remember that race. Oh, yeah. Did that before he did Survivor. And they're like races that are multi-sport. They often are on an unmarked course where you use a map and a compass to navigate between checkpoints. And there's usually um, a leg on foot, a leg on a mountain bike, some sort of paddling leg. Sometimes there's rappelling, sometimes there's horseback riding. It's just kind of this weird thing. And you do it as a team. And so he got me kind of into this sport and I I didn't know my limits, my endurance limits, which were very, um, very low. (laughs) And I, um, I got in that way, but he, I think overestimated my bike handling skills because I was an athlete and I was kind of fearless because I didn't know any better. And so he said the thing that I think a lot of well-meaning guys say to a, a female who doesn't have the same experience mountain biking as they do. They say, you're athletic, you'll be fine, just follow me. And so within the first eight times I ever was on a real mountain bike, I was on the Slick Rock Trail in Moab, Utah, bleeding and crying and cussing and very very upset, you know, after which she was like, you know, you don't have to do this. And, and I would think it was just too, too stubborn to let it beat me. And I think I spent two years really, really struggling because I, I didn't have any bike handling skills. I didn't know that you were supposed to lift the wheel over obstacles. I just thought you just rode as fast as you could at the thing. And then the bike did the rest. <laughs> Gosh, I rode for about 10 years before I ever got to go on another ride with another woman. The first woman I rode with was happened to be a, a pro and she you know, was complaining about how bad I was at the corners and how I always felt like I was sliding out and I was just, my skills were horrible. And she reached out and she felt my tire and she said, what are you pumping your tires to? And I said, well, 60 PSI. And that's what the tire said the max was. And that's also what the well-meaning dude said I should pump it to. And so I didn't know any better. And it really should be less than half of that. And so she, she reduced my tire pressure and taught me a few technique things about cornering and invited me to a women's clinic. And I learned just really, really basic stuff, stuff that you probably haven't grown up on a bike. You probably never even thought about these things because they're so second nature to you as they were to my well-meaning dude. And um, it just really rocked my world. I, it changed my whole experience with mountain biking from something that was um, you know, fear inducing. I would get really nervous and jittery every time I went out for a ride to something I looked forward to doing and felt confident enough finally to ride alone without fearing that I was going to fall and break something. That's kind of how I got into it. And it inspired me to become a certified instructor so that I could teach other, other women, especially, but other, other men, women, kids, the fundamental skills that could 
possibly let them leapfrog that that really painful learning process that I went through of exfoliating yourself on on a trail. That's great. So talk a little bit more about you got into this coaching. Obviously, our I'm sure people tuning in right now can already pick up your life has gone from water skier, adventure racer, mountain biker, coach. So you have that curiosity, you have a certain learned, I want to learn new things, I want to try new things, I want to overcome challenges. Mm-hmm. And so you took up coaching, because a lot of people would say, yes, I want to get better, but you took it to the next level in terms of the coaching. Walk us through a little bit of background there, because you and I talked offline. That's a pretty interesting part of your story as well. Yeah, so I think I just um, I just realized how much a little information could do to change someone's entire experience. And it was really fun. Like learning skills is it's a teachable, learnable thing that if you if you do it the right way, you can learn safely. And um, one of my favorite uh, students is my mother who at age 69 picked up mountain biking for the first time. She was not like a road cyclist before she was, she was strong and athletic, but she wasn't per se an athlete. And she learned in a clinic where I taught a bunch of women, um, with other co-coaches and it was a flat grassy field and we had little obstacles and little drills. The idea was that you're, you know, you can teach these skills in a low consequence, low intimidation, environment. And for some reason, when you have a group of women together, like I love riding and racing with dudes. I have nothing again, like I love co-ed activities. And I grew up being the only woman in a group of guys playing sports and that was fine. And I loved it. But I, I came to see that sometimes when you get women, including myself in a women's only environment, um, it somehow becomes less intimidating. And there's this factor where like, if you, if I see another guy do something at the bike park and I have most of my friends that I ride with at the bike park are guys, I'm like, wow, that's rad. And they can tell me, oh, you can do this. You, you totally have the skill to do this. I believe them, but I, my cells don't believe them in the same way that if I see another woman do something, then it, I don't know, something kind of clicks inside and makes you think, oh, if she can do this, maybe I can do it. So I guess I just saw the um, the opportunity for women to empower other women in this way. And I don't think it's the only way, but I just think it's a, a really nice discovery that I had kind of in the middle of my life. Oh, I've had a lot of fun coaching. So now I, um, I coach my, I'm the head coach of my son's high school mountain bike team, which is co-ed. And it's, it's pretty cool because it's, um, sixth grade to 12th grade. It's boys and girls. No one gets cut from the team. No one warms the bench. It takes this sport that is really, when you teach it, it's pretty accessible for anyone. It's a lifetime sport. You can do it after high school, after college. You can do it with your family. You can do it at a high competitive level or just as a casual, fun cruise around the lake um, level. And it's making it into a team interscholastic sport, which I think is, is pretty amazing. It's great for kids who, like me, were not good at stick and ball sports. And that's mostly what high school and college sports are. It just opens up the door to, um, I think, a whole subset of people who might not find themselves on another kind of sports team. Like you said, it goes from all ages. You're teaching your son's school team all the way up to your mom, who started at age 69. And I think a lot of older folks, I'll put myself in the kind of middle in there somewhere, but you tend to get in a routine and say, oh, I'm too old for this. And it's just awesome to hear your excitement about your mom. You got into coaching. 
not as a young new mountain biker at, at 23, but older in your career and still continue to do it and preaching that. And it doesn't have to be mountain biking, but I think mountain biking is a great example because a lot of people might be intimidated by it. And like you said there, it doesn't have to be what you see online and you pull up a YouTube video and you watch some of these guys, what they're doing nowadays is makes you queasy just watching the the video clip. <laughs> there's, nice. there's a happy, happy medium in there. So talking about teaching, obviously into mountain biking and stuff, and you mentioned water skiing, you live in Idaho now. So people obviously aren't um, thinking, wow, she was water skiing in Idaho. No, you grew up as I take it in Alabama, correct? Sort of. I grew up moving back and forth between California and Alabama. So I joke that I'm from Alabama. Okay. <laughs> Where I am, I ain't from around there. So um, I learned to water ski on a catfish pond in Alabama. And then we moved back to California where I was born when I was in sixth grade. And um, I actually trained at a water ski school in the middle of the desert, in the Mojave Desert. And then we moved to North Florida to the Panhandle and I continued training there. And so it's, um, I just moved a lot. And your, your husband, the dude, I think you've alluded to. Oh, well, the the WM. <laughs> and you told me his nickname was fast Eddie. So yes. who is a, a mountain biker himself so i'm sure there's some of that yeah that like you said that fast eddie obviously yep. then as the name implies trying to oh you can do it and we as males sometimes tend to do that but i also think in a larger population something else you alluded to kim that i think is great as you were talking about the women in the environment and i firmly believe this since women to women but it's just in the population in general we hear from a lot of experts online in the lights. And a lot of times, no, it's just somebody that's a little bit further ahead in the journey as you are. And, mm -hmm. and there's that relational factor. You don't have to be an expert. If, if you have something to share like you did and decided to, hey, I can create a team, I can coach and give back, it's still so beneficial the the joy that you've gotten from, i'm sure from teaching your mom and the kids and everything that's a key component too is is being able to not think you always have to be an expert and have everything figured oh, no. out and you know we sometimes struggle to recruit female coaches into the sport and it's getting a lot better but i think that a lot of women um mistakenly believe like oh i'm not good enough the bottom line is you don't have to be a great mountain biker to be a great coach you have to care you have to show up and you have to be there and you have to model things like um, doing something wrong and being like, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm just learning. The ability to be imperfect or to fail in front of another woman is, I think, one of the greatest gifts you can give her because we tear ourselves down internally because we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. But I just think if you're comfortable with being not perfect at something and, and okay with that, then that's, that's a wonderful thing to model and to demonstrate. And I, I think, um, gosh, I, I wish I could remember who it was, but a, a female pro on the Luna team told me that she's like, I can have more of an impact on another woman by, by losing and being okay with that than I can by win winning. And I was like, oh, that's so true. That's kind of a, a really radical thing to think about in some ways, that it's not about projecting your own success isn't the way you can influence people the most, but rather by not being perfect and not being that successful and failing and trying again and being okay with that process, 
there's a beautiful message in that that I think everyone can benefit from. Absolutely. I think it goes back to your story, what I'll say started as a project that really morphed into something more with your son and the wheelie project was as you touched on it 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 became more about the joy of the process Mm -hmm. like you said it's so many of us it's very easy i think in today's world and and the incessant kind of feeds from social media and the news and all this we hear we we constantly hear about outcomes and what is the outcome just like you spoke about versus what is it? What can I gain from just doing the process and not necessarily worrying about the outcome and winning or losing? That was it there. And, and your your friend who is a woman mountain biker expressed it too. And I, I don't think it's just women. I understand certainly, but I, th- I think a lot of guys feel that too, that pressure to it's, it's always about the outcome. So really taking that joy that your son taught you in that process it's a beautiful story within the process there for sure. So you've done so much Kim and the way raising your son and you've obviously very into the outdoors at the end of this, we'll certainly give everyone where they can find you online and, and they're going to go to your Instagram and your website and all these places and, and see these fantastic pictures of you and your family with friends outside and your mom a a little plug here on the side I just saw the um, Instagram with you and your mom at the bike park and your mom if you don't mind me asking is how old now she's 80 she's 80 and you guys spent Mother's Day on on the bikes because that's what she wanted to do right Exactly. I asked her, I said, mom, what do you want to do for Mother's Day? Because my family asked me and I was like, I just kind of, I think I want to go for a long ride by myself and then, you know, have dinner with you guys later. And I asked my mom what she wanted to do. And without hesitation, she said, I want to go to the bike park again. And I want you to teach me the dirt jumps. And so now granted, she's not, she's not flying off the dirt jump. She's not catching air, but she's riding the beginner dirt jump line, learning bike body separation, which is a skill. And like she is, I can guarantee you, she's the only 80 year old out there doing that. Um, but it, it was just really cool. And, you know, she, she learned and learned safely and she's been, she, she rode the other day, 20 miles with an, with a friend on the green belt, um, on the bike path. And I was just like 20 miles. That's like a legitimate road ride, <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> road ride. but she did it on her mountain bike, just on the local trail. And I just, uh, I don't know. She's a great example of like, it's never too late to learn and you don't really need to act your age. That. That is so, so true. And it's, we have good friends here. And um, actually, one of the first Monday Nuggets I did, she was telling me her mom, who's in her 80s as well, last year decided to try to take sailing lessons by herself. I'm not a sailor. I I love being on the water, but it's, it takes effort. And she went out and, Yeah. yeah, and it was just about the, it was the same, same idea which is just so cool. And especially like you said, to see probably the only 80 year old on a mountain bike on mother's day, maybe in the country. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> I'm sure there are others, but she was definitely the only one at the bike park. <laughs> the only one at the bike park I should add. Okay. Maybe there's, maybe there's a handful of other ones. So your mom has had some influence on you. You're influencing your son. Kim, what does your story mean to you? And what do you want it to mean 
to your family, you know, your son, your husband, your friends, because you live that life of curiosity of trying new things, kind of that we talk about fearlessness and some people get caught off guard, I'll say by that word, but you really, you really live it as part of your stories. Share with us what it means to you and how you go through life with that approach. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. So I guess I would say fearlessness. I would say if I'm fearless, it's that I'm not afraid to fail. And I failed pretty big and pretty hard at some pretty significant things. And I won't go into them professionally and in sports. I've gone big and failed big. And to go big, you have to be willing to fail big, but then you have to like get back up and keep keep going. And I think that that's kind of the key is that it's it's really only failure if it's the last thing you do. Otherwise, you can reframe it into uh, a step of the process, um, a launch pad to the next thing. Because in every failure, there's the gift of some lesson usually. And that I think is the mindset that I've tried to have. You know, there have been times when I've gone through hard stuff and in the middle of it, it's pretty hard to see the lesson. Sometimes it takes years and a lot of suffering (laughs) and get there. You just have to trust that at some point you're going to emerge from that hard thing and be able to look back on it and and, and realize, okay, this is what I learned from this. This is what I learned that is going to make me better equipped to go forward and do the next thing. But I think as a metaphor, sports are a great metaphor for that because I think of it as bowling. You know, in any sport, to get to go from like good to great, you have to push yourself past your comfort zone into a realm where falling is not only possible, but likely and inevitable. And in order to to get great at any sport, you have to go through that. You have to cross that threshold. You have to learn how to fall without getting hurt or in a way that minimizes the the risk of getting hurt. And so I think that's a wonderful life lesson. <laughs> you yeah. know, learn yeah. most of the wonderful lessons that I've learned about uh, life have come through sports for me. Um, and I think falling, learning to fall and get back up and how to talk and like how to fall. And then sometimes even how to carry that momentum into your, your getting back up is, um, is a wonderful skill to have and a, and a good mindset that, makes it um, either less painful or it makes the pain more meaningful. I'm not sure which, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great wisdom, Kim. I think we can take from that and tie it into sports and what they can teach us about that and how we should all sort of have some component of that in our lives at any age. Part of that process, um, you know, you're constantly learning constantly challenging yourself and you now an outside magazine in your contributor profile it says that in in 2020 you rode your bike 216 days did 5989 wheelies so you lied a little bit earlier in 6000 but i won't hold you to it thanks for fact checking yeah <laughs> what's on your list for uh, 2021 so let's see as of today i have a ride later today it'll be day 116 on the bike i did make it 201 days in a row but then i got my covid second shot and i was too sick to ride the next day but um this year um you know i want i want to grow into being a great head coach and that involves developing a totally different skill set like i'm really good at coaching bike handling skills but now i have to learn things like how to how to plan um, a team training season, how to learn periodization. Like there's a, you know, on for cycling, there's a build phase. There's a phase where you do intervals and you start, 
using your endurance base and then incorporating hard efforts. And then there's the competition phase. And um, I want to, to teach my team, my student athletes, what they can learn about their mind through sports and how their mind is such a big part of the, the system they need to train. It's not just about training your body, but you have to train your mind and, and what you can do or what you learn from that in competition, you can apply to other areas of your life. So I'd say that's kind of, that's a big goal. And then just personally, I, I, I want to keep going on the dirt jumps. I'd like to learn the intermediate dirt jumps, but I've got to overcome my own head. Basically, I know I have the skill to do the intermediate line, but there's, um, there's a mental block that's just fear-based and I'm learning how to work through that and, um, and trying to moderate the risk because now that I'm a coach, I can't afford to get hurt or it's, you know, the stakes seem higher. So. Right. Which touch on a little bit, Kim, what have, have you learned? I know it's early on, but like you mentioned the, the intermediate jump line at the park and you know, you have the skills but it's that fear factor that we all have. What have you learned as you're studying and growing that? How are you approaching it to try to overcome that, that maybe somebody else out there listening can also do that has the same fears in a different avenue of their life? Right. Well, I think it's a combination of tra training yourself in the skills. And um, when you do the repeated skills, muscle memory is really a neurological thing. Um, it's, but you're, you're training yourself to do the thing so that it becomes kind of instinctual. And so mentally, I'm trying to kind of get my subconscious, entrust my subconscious and my reflexes and my, instead of my conscious mind, which I think the conscious mind is like your editor. It's the one who's always fussing at you and telling you you're doing things wrong, but your subconscious mind knows how to, how to do things. And if you get your conscious mind to shut up a little bit, mm -hmm. then you can, you can do that thing better. And I think visualization is a technique that has always been a part of my, I think, competitive success. When I, when I was younger as a water skier, I, I was very well trained and very highly skilled, but I would choke in competitions, like really choke. Like I'd go out in my first nationals, I was ranked second in the nation and I came in last because I totally choked. I think it, it took me probably 10 years to learn it, but to learn how to kind of calm your mind and focus, visualize yourself doing the thing that you need to do. And then not to, you know, hope for a miracle, but to just say like, I want to go out and do the thing that I'm trained to do. Nothing more, nothing less. Let me just go out and do what I do in practice every day. And I think that's the trick. It's easier said than done. I guess for this year, my, my goal is to train my mind as deliberately as I've trained my body with the wheelies and, and with sports in the past, but to work on kind of thinking positively and visualizing and training my mind to go into the States and produce the results that I want, I think that's a doable thing that I've never tackled in that same way. So what I did with the wheelie, I'm, I'm trying to do now with, with training my mind. That was like an aha moment for me that training your mind takes just as much time and effort and repetition mm -hmm. as it does. It's, Hey, I want to be able to do a hundred pushups by the, in three months you need to put in the same amount of effort. What you're saying is to train your mind and you've been there at the elite level doing it, speaking from experience and being on the other side of it, like you said, admitting that it didn't go so well in the water skiing era that you've overcome that through the practice and repetition. That's great. And that could translate to even 
folks that are take their jobs or their careers, I think, get scared of taking it to the next level. They can do the technical side, but yep. training your brain as to, hey, it's a new leadership role, new management role, whatever it is, and spending as much time on your mental capacity as your physical capacity or your tangible skills, I'll say. So that's, mm-hmm. that's great advice for all of us. Thanks for that. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add, you know, I've read a couple of books that I'd love to share with your listeners and because they, they helped me a lot and both of them are sports psychology books, but I think they're both, they both kind of cross the threshold into um, use beyond sports in, you know, career and life. And one of them is the inner game of tennis. And I think it was written in, I want to say the 1970s, and it's a book about tennis, but I think there, there's like an NFL coach and an NBA coach who both said it's the book they give their athletes. And um, I, I heard there was a classical musician who said like, Inner Game of Tennis is the best book I've ever read about playing the cello or something like that. <laughs> but it, it's about that duality of the mind where there's the the critical, you know, conscious mind and then the the, the subconscious that knows knows what to do if you can get the, the critical part of your, your brain to, to be quiet. And so it's about that. And then the other book is called The Fearless Mind. And it is, you know, many of the same principles written a, a different way. But I think both of them are about um, deliberate practice and how if you don't focus on the results, like, oh, I want to be the fastest racer out there, but rather the tasks or the, the things that you need to do on a task by task training day by training day basis that will ultimately get you there. Um, You focus on those things. You focus on the 100 wheelies a day. That's all you can control that one day. And you just make sure that when you're out there, you're just, you're doing them. And if it's, if it's a bad day, you, 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 you take it and, and try not to let it discourage you. You keep going. If it's a good day, you figure out what you've learned and improved by and use that. So anyway, I think both of those are, are great reads for anyone who wants to kind of dive a little deeper into that. That's awesome. What I'll do is I'll look up those books and create some links when we publish the podcast here so people can jump on those and and find those. So thanks for sharing those books. But since you're a great author and I really enjoyed your story and you've already had some books published, what stories of yours should we look for next? So um, I have a book coming out in August, the end of August. It's called The Stall House. And it is, um, it is a book about a celebrity house. Um, the Stall House is case study house number 22. It was part of the case study house program, which was one of the greatest experiments in American architecture during the 1950s and 60s after World War II. There was a magazine editor who was the editor of Arts and Architecture magazine, and he realized there was going to be a major housing crunch. When the war ended, um, all of these millions of people were going to come home and no residential construction had been going on during the war because all of the resources and labor was directed to the war effort. And so he conceived of this idea that he could tap the nation's um, most talented young modernist architects to reimagine the American average family home and reimagine the American lifestyle and design homes that would be prototypes that could be built across the nation on any site. And uh, this was the most famous of the houses. And so it kind of tells the story of how this house came to be first a a very complicated thing to build. It's um, a glass house cantilevered over a cliff in Hollywood. And it's photographed more than falling water. But it tells the story of this. It's like a biography of a house, how this house went from a dream house that was 
said to be impossible to build, to an architectural icon, to really a celebrity in its own right. Like this house has been on The Simpsons <laughs> <laughs> and in 12 movies. And I mean, it's really, it's kind of like, yeah, it's a famous house. So anyway, that's coming out in August. So look for the stall house. And then the other book, which just turned, I think, six years old is What Stands in a Storm. And it's it's a true story about the biggest tornado outbreak on record. Which I've had on my list. It's next as soon as I finish this book, because I, I really want to read that. And you look for stories as we talked offline, interesting stories. So talk a little bit about how you found that story, which is kind of a, I mean, that's a heart-wrenching story, The Eye of the Storm. But what was the gestation for that? How did you come across writing that book? Oh, gosh. So it, it really started as a magazine piece when I was, well, before I wrote it, when the storm broke out in 2011, it was April 2011. And I was living in Alabama working for Southern Living. We, we had this horrible tornado outbreak. And I was huddled in my safe place with my husband and my son, who was four, and our dog. And we had helmets on. And it hit very close to our house, you know, six miles away, relatively close. Um, but it, it killed like 252 people in Alabama, 62 tornadoes in one day. It was crazy. And it started as basically a, a magazine story for Southern Living. And we looked at how people cope with horrible things and the good things that come out of those broken places. And so when the story came out, a lot of readers wrote in and said, you know, I saw the same thing in my neighborhood after a flood or a house fire or some some other storm of their own. Things that seem to tear our world apart also reveal what holds us together. And that's kind of the theme of it. It seems like a message that you can never hear enough because life is going to be full of storms. Something beautiful always comes from them, which is different from saying that everything happens for a reason. I don't, I don't like that saying, but it really focused on how the community came together in the wake of the storm in, in beautiful ways. That's great. And once you hear Kim on this podcast, tell your listeners, I'm sure to go put links to all her works because she's she's an excellent storyteller. And I'd be re remiss to bring up one more story, which is talking about stories intersecting of, of people, Noel and, and Leon, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that one, too. Oh, so this was one of my favorite stories of all time. And I, I, I chased it for five years, just trying to find the right place for it. And um, it's basically a true story about two strangers, 26 years old, 26 year old Brit, 27 year old American who independently of one another decide to ride their bicycle across Eurasia. And one of them decides to ride from Europe to Asia and the other one decides to ride from Asia to Europe. And one of, the, they're very different. They're almost polar opposites. And one of them um, is kind of an optimist and he believes the world's a pretty safe place and people are inherently good. And he, he just sort of has this charmed existence as he's crossing the continent and things, when they even go wrong, they go wrong in all the right ways. And um, the other one believes that the world's pretty sketchy, but he loves adventure and he loves risk. And so the world also proves him right. So as he's going across, he has just near tragedy after near tragedy and just gets by with the skin of his teeth. And at some point, he's, they both enter the desert. There's a desert sort of at the midpoint of this journey. And there's really nothing there. There's hardly even, there's like one road and it's a dirt road. And they're, uh, they're both several days into this, this desert crossing when they meet. And one of them has broken three spokes. 
and his wheel has gone out of true and his it's rattling his bike apart and he's about to give up. And the other one is, is fine. <laughs> and <laughs> the one whose wheel is broken, he has the tools to fix it, but he doesn't know how to use them. And the other one is a bike mechanic and he doesn't have the <laughs> but he knows how to fix it. So they meet at this crazy midpoint. The one fixes the other's wheel and they go on their way. But the story wouldn't be the story if you didn't know their names. And their names are opposites of one another. It's Leon and Noel. And, and so it was this, this crazy true story. And um, because their names form kind of a palindrome and because they're such opposites. I decided to, to write the story and structure it as palindrome. That was kind of a fun challenge. And yeah, it, it came out last year and, uh, and it's just one of my favorites. So I think uh, if you search for it, you have to search for the, the titles quite long. It's what happens when two strangers um, trust the rides of their lives to the magic of the universe. But I just call it Noel and Leon for, for short. And you did so well with it. And I just enjoy the fact that it's true it speaks to the point of living our own stories and i often say it doesn't have to be grandiose like riding this super long adventure on a bicycle but what your story outlines so well is what happens when you start living your story and the interactions and kind of the collisions i'll say that we have with others in our own story as they're leading theirs. So that just highlights what can happen in the serendipity that happens. It's really cool. And I'll also leave a, a link to it down below. Oh, thank you. Um, Kim, this is, this has been just awesome, inspirational. Uh, and I just want to say congrats on all your efforts. I mean, from everything you've done to creating the, the work that you do with the women's coaching to coaching your son's biking team, and just being all being an all around cool, inspirational mom and wife. And like I said, you're going to look at her up online and you're going to say, yeah, I, I want to be some of Kim Cross. So when people look for you, where, where should they go find you? <laughs> well, thank you. That's very flattering. Um, so my website is under construction, but it's kimhcross.com. And I'm Kim H. Cross on all of the socials. Kim H. Cross author on Facebook. So um, yeah, and I just started a newsletter where I'm going to share some of my favorite stories and books, fun little things for people who like creative nonfiction. So perfect. Oh, and they can, so that newsletter, once you're, they'll be able to get to that, sign up for that uh, through like your new website coming out. That's right. I think I posted a link on my socials and my website will be, a new one will be up and running by next week. Yeah. Perfect. Awesome. Well, Kim, thanks so much for being on today and taking the time out of your day. Enjoy. Tell your son good luck on his um, rehab. Thanks so much. I know on behalf of everyone listening, we're, we really learned a lot from you today. Well, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. You know, someone should start a podcast titled Moms Who Rock because it was really energizing listening to Kim. And I know there's a bunch more out there like her. You could just hear the passion she has for embracing both the highs and lows of the process as she travels along her own path. Thanks for tuning in, Tribe. And to use the word serendipity again, sometimes it could use a little nudge, like having someone else stumble across this podcast. So if you have a minute to give a rating or a like, I would be very grateful and humbled. Until next time, have a great week.